1: I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. After the news today, my special guest is Lucina Dadalian, who is an expert in South Caucasus, and uh, politics in the region. Uh, Lucine and I are gonna discuss uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey's attack on Artsakh, also known as nagorno karabakh which happened last year for 44 days. And uh, the hostilities and violence continues uh, in the region against the Armenians. So stay tuned for my conversation with Lucine. Here are a few headlines this morning. The house speaker nancy pelosi has set a new deadline for the house to pass a major infrastructure spending bill after a week of negotiations left president biden's social and environmental policy overhaul plan in a limbo in a letter to house democrats on saturday uh, speaker pelosi said that the house will have until uh, october 31st to pass the 1 trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill which passed the Senate in August. Donald Trump has asked a federal judge in Florida to force Twitter to reinstate his account. In July, Trump sued Twitter, Facebook, and Google, as well as their chief executives, alleging they unlawfully silenced conservative viewpoints. Trump's request for a preliminary injunction against Twitter was filed late on Friday in Miami, claiming the social media company canceled his account in January under pressure from his political rivals in Congress. The COVID-19 death toll in the U.S. has now surpassed 700,000 despite the COVID-19 vaccine's wide availability in what one expert called a tragic and completely avoidable milestone. Data from Johns Hopkins University shows that the U.S. went just passed 700,000 deaths on Friday. The U.S. had previously reached 600,000 deaths in June. The country has had a total of 43.6 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic, according to Johns Hopkins. California Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday imposed the nation's first coronavirus vaccination mandate for school children. But the mandate won't take effect immediately and won't apply to all students. The mandate takes effect the semester after the federal government gives final approval. Newsom expects that to be as early as January 1st, but no later than July 1st. The mandate for kindergarten through sixth grade will kick in only after the federal government has given final vaccine approval for students ages five to 11.
0: Let's talk a little bit about where we are today. The senator was right uh, to consequence the lowest case rates in America. Our positivity rates are a third uh, and a quarter by this pandemic. We're exhausted by the seasonality of it. We're exhausted by these variants, the mutations, and we're all left wondering, as we now move through the summer surge, not just here in California but across this country, what lies in front of us in the winter and the spring And while there continues to be encouraging signs and continuing to see progress with more and more people that were maybe on the fence uh, that are now getting the vaccine or life-saving drugs at the back end, there's still a struggle to get to where we need to go. And that means we need to do more and we need to do better to reach out and to make available uh, more opportunities for people to get vaccinated and encourage them along the way. As you know, we have not been shy superintendent and I want to thank you for your leadership here uh, in the school district and madam uh, board chair thank you for being here as well Uh, we have continued to lean in California was the first state in the United States to require uh, statewide school mask wearing requirements we were the first state in America to require all of our staff to either be vaccinated and or get weekly testing. We were the first state to step up at scale and broaden a a commitment to zero-cost vaccinations and testing and to provide an unprecedented amount of resources for PPE and billions and billions of dollars uh, to prepare to safely reopen our schools for in-person instruction. We know there is no substitute uh, for in-person instruction, but we need to do that on a consistent and sustainable basis, not an episodic basis. And what you've seen across this country is that leaders assert the need and desire for the social emotional benefits of in-person instruction, yet they're not following the science. And as a consequence the health of many of these districts, kids as well as staff, have been impacted. So schools have actually closed more frequently in those states that have not been more disciplined in terms of advancing uh, a more scientific and data-driven approach to taming this disease and doing our best to get this pandemic behind us. And that's why we recognize good enough never is, and that's why we recognize our responsibility to do more, and that's what we are announcing here today, a statewide requirement for in-person instruction for all of our children to add to a well-established list that currently includes 10 vaccinations and well established rules and regulations that have been advanced by the legislature for decades to add to that list the vaccination uh, for COVID-19. We intend to do that once the FDA has fully approved the vaccine, which will give us time to work with districts, give us time to work with parents and educators Uh, to build more trust and confidence, and build out a logistics so that we can deliver on what we are promoting here today. And that promotion includes the following considerations. Once the FDA approves the vaccination in different cohorts, starting with 12 and above, grades seven to 12, we will begin to apply uh, that requirement in the next term, either January 1st or July 1st, whichever Comes sooner. Concurrent with that, we also want to see all of our staff, paraprofessionals, not just teachers, bus drivers, custodial staff and the like, the folks that really make the school system operational, also see them get vaccinated as well. Uh, And we will model similarly an FDA approval and work in concert not only to apply and implement in parallel Uh, with all of those in grades 7 and 12, but on the basis of the guidelines and the regulations that will be forthcoming from the Biden administration as it relates to all employees, uh, we will consider uh, moving that forward. But in the absence of that directive, uh, we will be requiring staff uh, K through 12 to be vaccinated in that first phase of a two-phase application of this new directive. The second phase of that application is everybody K-6. to Again, that will be months away. Currently, uh, we have in the state of California uh, administered at least one dose to 63.5% of all of uh, our young cohort ages 12 to 17, but we have to do more. Again, 84% of all eligible receive one dose, but for 12 to 17, we're not where we need to be. And so we hope this encourages folks uh, to get vaccinated. We have no trepidation, no, um, well, no hesitancy in encouraging local districts to move forward more expeditiously. And you've seen that in a number of districts in the state of California that have moved forward uh, more quickly with their own mandates and own timelines. Uh, and we expect on the basis of other similar requirements that you'll see, start to see an uptick in people getting vaccinated well before those dates that are established. You've seen that with healthcare worker mandates, you've seen that with state staff mandates, and I'll just highlight um, there was an analysis in the New York Times yesterday about California's healthcare mandate, uh, working as it was intended. Now, north of 90% in some uh, regions of the state, it's closer to 95, 96% of all healthcare workers uh, got that vaccination before the stated requirement went into effect midnight last night. As it relates to the current vaccination requirements, I'll remind people, the ones we announced a few months ago, they go into effect on the 15th of this month as it relates to mandates for either being vaccinated and or uh, getting consistently tested. So, uh, we're building on that, we're leaning forward, we're anticipating a future uh, with the winter surge that has been the most challenging for this state and states like California. In the past, uh, we are mindful that we still have work to do. We are humbled by the challenge, uh, but we want to get this thing done. We want to end this pandemic. We are all exhausted by it. In the purpose for medical reasons, personal and or religious beliefs, those are established in these guidelines as well. And so today, we are directing uh, the Department of Public Health, Dr. Galley is here, can answer questions, uh, to move in this direction to establish consistent with well-established approval in November does this mean that the uh, this requirement could go into effect as
2: early as January or more likely would it go to an in effect either in the summer or the fall. Thanks.
0: Well it's the term after the FDA approval so that that determination will be made once the FDA moves and we can't predict that. Uh, So one can speculate, but uh, again, it's the term following the FDA's approval as early as January 1st. As it relates to the first part of your question, uh, look, uh, we're just putting out the guidelines, uh, putting out the regulations. Uh, You heard from Senator Weiner, and he could speak perhaps to this more um, uh, comprehensively, a willingness not just to work uh, with the executive branch but the legislature has been leading in this space for many many years well before i got uh, into this office and so that is certainly something that one can anticipate but i'll worse than i'm with abc seven so given that as of today because of the health care
2: worker vaccine mandate there are health care workers being placed on unpaid leaves of absences it's possible people will be terminated as soon as october 15th for certain health care systems What do you anticipate being the system, the consequences for school staff or school students who don't get vaccinated and don't have an accommodation?
0: Well, I mean, the same consequences are in place on the basis of all kinds of other rules and regulations that are well-established as it relates to requirement for employment. So those are well-established procedures and processes. But here's the good news. We have some evidence. San Francisco Unified School District overwhelmingly uh, has succeeded in getting staff across the spectrum, vaccinated overwhelmingly, I think, Mr. Superintendent, you're what you said north of 96 percent. So I'd like to focus on the positive, not just the negative. We tend to highlight a little bit of the exceptions, and we'll work through those things. But you saw with our health care requirements that California is faring a little bit better than some of the other states. But as challenges present themselves, uh, we'll try to meet those challenges. Uh, but I believe that on the basis of requirements that have been in place, and by the way, they're getting people vaccinated. They're actually ending this pandemic. They're getting our economy moving again. They're getting our kids educated. They're making us healthier and safer. And if that's the intention, to keep us healthy and safe and get our economy moving and get our kids back with all the benefits of being in-person instruction, um, then all I say is let's get this done and and let's get others to follow suit.
1: Uh, Ali Tadion with EdSource. Uh, why is the state waiting for full FDA approval and not implementing the mandate
2: sooner uh, while it has um, emergency use authorization uh, ahead of the flu season?
0: Uh, we talked to, you know, we've got 1,050 school districts. We've got a lot of different points of views and opinions, a lot of regionality, a lot of distinctions. We thought this was the best uh, and most appropriate next step for the state of California. Again, we, no one's been shy. Uh, we have been standing still on this pandemic, quite the contrary. Uh, We're continuing to be open to argument, interested in evidence. We want to see how things uh, are manifesting in real time. Uh, We'll see how things go, but we felt the basis of the experts that uh, guided this decision and the advisory committees that we have formed formally, and those that have been formed informally over the course of the last number of weeks as we've been adjudicating the pros and cons of many different strategies as it relates to the education efforts that we're advancing here today, uh, that FDA, full FDA approval uh, was best for the purposes of the announcement today.
2: Jill Tucker from the San Francisco Chronicle. Governor, can you clarify a little bit when staff, teachers, other workers from school districts will be required to get the vaccine. It sounded like you're talking a little fast <laughs> and so was trying to figure out exactly when each grade will have to be vaccinated and that this in fact does apply to all adults in schools for in-person learning.
0: Yeah, so after full FDA approval in two phases, first phase being 7th to 12th grades and on the basis of a question that I'm often asked, I have some friends with very young kids that are in seventh grade, some a little older, uh, It's on the basis of your age, similar to other vaccine requirements consistent with the rules and regulations that are well established. That will be phase one. Concurrent with that phase, we anticipate getting all of our staff uh, following a similar requirement. That said, on the basis of the, well, All of us have been waiting for the Biden administration's formal rulemaking as it relates to his federal mandate for employees, private sector employees. We're waiting for that instruction. There's a possibility, is what I was suggesting, that things could happen sooner. But the purposes of what we are putting out through this health order today, uh, it shows that in parallel with that first phase, seven to 12, second phase upon FDA approval is K-6. to
2: Sorry, real quick follow-up. Do you have to wait for the Biden's rules, or could you just announce requirements for the staff oh, all schools?
0: We can announce. Uh, we're just, again, I, I, and I, it's important, and I've, I've said this many times be, because it needs to be said. We're not, I said it a moment ago as well, no one's standing still here. Our, our intention is, 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 it's universal. Everybody, those that support things like this, people that don't, we want to get this disease behind us.
1: Some 60,000 members of the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees received ballots on Friday morning asking them to authorize the first nationwide strike in the union's history. Members had three days to vote, with ballots due at 9 p.m. Pacific Time last night. The results are expected to be announced today. The union's 13 West Coast locals represent the vast majority of Hollywood's below-the-line workforce, including camera operators, grips, editors, script coordinators, makeup artists, costume designers, set dressers, and sound mixers. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. On today's Let's Get Blunt, um, I want to talk about mass media, media throughout the world, all forms of media, whether it be broadcast, uh, print, Uh, social media, and everything in between, what media decides to cover and not cover, what they think is important, and how how some things get an incredible amount of coverage and some things are just completely ignored or barely talked about. I was um, observing how this new 007 uh, James Bond film was getting coverage in the last few days, and I understand that the studio spends a great deal of money with their own internal uh, PR team as well as hiring PR uh, companies that do this to sort of you know, amplify it and make a big sound so that the opening weekend is great and all of that. But I was just stunned as to not only the volume of coverage, but how some otherwise intelligent journalists we're talking about this film and how it was Daniel Craig's last uh, appearance as James Bond as if it was a significant historical event that was going to take place. I posted on Facebook uh, and I wrote, uh, it's as if you know Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci came to life all of a sudden. They came back from the dead and decided to collaborate on a new painting. It's just laughable that... One film gets so much coverage um, in the context of everything that's happening in this world. I mean, you know, first let's just talk about domestically. If we're gonna talk about show business, let's just stay there. We have a potential strike by the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees. That will affect 60,000 members, most of whom, almost all of them actually live in Southern California. And that's looming. And the coverage on that is just so minimal uh, compared to a film. Or let's not even talk about some of the other entertainment coverage, you know, as far as uh, what so-and-so was wearing at the Met Gala and things like that. And of course, you know, it, it makes me think about other neglected things, such as the genocide that's taking place in Ethiopia that most people don't even know about, or the one that was, that's been happening in Yemen uh, by Saudi Arabia for years, and uh, you barely hear about. We surpassed 700,000 Americans dead from coronavirus. You don't see a lot of coverage about that, but we have to talk about James Bond incessantly, 24-7, this film. Uh, or the new uh, installment of Housewives of Something, or uh, some other show. Uh, it's just—it's um, uh, just frustrating. Now, of course, I've—I've I've talked about this before, and my guests and I talked about this, or my guests, I should say, in the last uh, year about the—the the fact that this sort of genocide 2.0 that happened. Uh, to the Armenians last year for 44 days, when Azerbaijan and Turkey uh, orchestrated uh, this genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing on the Armenians of uh, Artsakh, a region that's also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, where, for the most part, um, there was deafening silence from uh, from the world, from world leaders and media. Some media outlets like The Guardian and Forbes. Uh, did a good job of covering it, while others wrote very uh, biased and false and erroneous articles and reporting, uh, such as the New York Times and BBC. And you don't hear much about it. And uh, it it just uh, it just fascinates me how much coverage we give to um, a film uh, or something very just something that's not really that important. And how much value we give to human life and human human suffering that happens and keeps happening all over the place. So, I'm just getting blunt on media. I'm a part of it, and so it's uh, it's fair to also criticize oneself and criticize one's own uh, industry and say, can we do better? Can we balance it? Yes, I understand we all need. Um, escapism. We all need entertainment and it's all about uh, supply and demand and people want to know about these things. Otherwise, it wouldn't be covered. But where's the personal responsibility of journalists and editors and uh, newsrooms um, saying, you know, let's just cover some of the things that are just neglected. So there it is. That's my uh, getting blunt about uh, this lack of balance and lack of diversity in what we cover uh, in media and not really uh, giving the attention that uh, some items uh, truly deserve. So there it is. I just got blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Lucine Dadayan is a social scientist based in Canada Azerbaijan's invasion on Artsakh last year, a region also known as Nagorno Karabakh, led Lucine to become actively engaged in raising awareness about Azerbaijan's and Turkey's genocidal policies toward Armenians. Good morning, Lucine. Thank you for being on the blog post with Vic this morning. How are you today?
2: I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, Vic.
1: Well, thanks for being on the show. Um, I've been. Uh, Very eager to talk to you about a topic that's very close to both of us, but uh, when it comes to the general public, Americans in general, and especially the world audience, it's still very um, sort of foreign and not talked about. Uh, So every once in a while, I like to get updates from someone who's really following it and really knows what they're talking about. And of course, it's the... What happened last year that's ongoing, which is the the unprovoked genocidal attack and uh, ethnic cleansing that was unleashed on the people of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, breakaway region um, that is its own independent republic um, with vast majority Armenian uh, ethnic population. Uh, It was attacked by Azerbaijan with help from Turkey, Uh, and such. Um, I don't want to get too much into it because I'd like to really have you tell that story. And um, sort of, you know, most people who are tuning in probably have not heard about it or don't know much about it if they've heard about it. So I'd like to start by sort of going back to how this actually happened and what happened, if you will, if you can tell us about that.
2: Sure. I mean, I'll try to be as brief as possible, but on September 27, 2020, Armenians woke up to learn that there are rockets attacking Stepanaget and other parts of Artsakh. And um, it was clear that Azerbaijan started invading Artsakh. And this has been an Uh, This conflict has been going for decades, right? I mean, the first time the first war occurred between late 1980s through 1994, when the ceasefire agreement uh, was signed, and after that, and finally the big war occurred in 2020. It lasted for 44 days. Unfortunately, the world was silent during those 44 days, no matter how many Armenians were being killed, no matter that Azerbaijan was committing war crimes every single day um, by using weapons that are prohibited under international law, by uh, burning down the... Uh, ecosystem of Artsakh but, while using white phosphorus and committing several other war crimes. I mean, um the brutality was so beyond any human comprehension, like they would behead Armenians, film it, and send the videos to the relatives of all Armenians, to the mothers of all um Soldiers that they killed, that they beheaded. So it was a very brutal war, I I would say, actually, war crimes against Armenians. They ethnically cleansed part of Artsakh, and um, thousands of Armenians uh, became IDPs, inter- um, internally displaced people. And um, there is a huge humanitarian crisis right now happening in Artsakh, and still Artsakh is being So much isolated from the international um, NGOs, from the international community. It's um, just unbelievable the hypocrisy of the international community. When it comes to ourselves, they don't talk about it. They don't take actions. And the only way that it was possible to reach ceasefire was actually because of the Russian um, intervention.
1: Yeah, that was a very good description. Um, there's a lot there that you, you talked about. It was very dense. Just for our, you know, our listeners. You know, this was something that was orchestrated and planned out for about a year prior to September 27th with the uh, help from Turkey uh, and weapons from multiple countries. And they brought in uh, jihadist mercenaries uh, from Syria, Libya, Pakistan. And uh, Azerbaijan um, had gotten ready by hiring uh, six uh, K Street lobbying firms and multiple PR firms in the US and Europe to, to make sure that the, that the leaders of the world have uh, hear a, a sort of the false narrative and that they can um, manipulate politicians as well as media. And they were able to do that for, for the most part. I mean, you know, I always talk about the horrifically slanted and uh, just propaganda pieces written in the New York Times and BBC. Uh, reports um, that were so um, uh, devoid of facts and truth and fact checking. Um, you know, we've we've uh, learned a lot about uh, Azerbaijan government's uh, lobbying and their infiltrations into uh, newsrooms and editorial offices of many media outlets to make sure that the world hears um, just the false narrative and uh, the lies that they have been telling and they continue to do so. In fact, the president of Azerbaijan, Aliyev, just gave an interview to France 24 that was just filled with um, just complete lies and delusional statements. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I know the answer to this, but let's get into the reality that I don't think any leader, whether it's uh, Europeans or North Americans or just anywhere, really, and agencies and organizations like Council of Europe and European Union and European Parliament, the State Department, uh, the United Nations. I don't think anyone is blind to what happened and what Azerbaijan did, but what was the cause of their deafening
2: silence? Well, I think one of the biggest causes for the deafening silence is that Azerbaijan spent billions of dollars in corrupting legislators, the politicians, the reporters, the influencers all over the world, not just in Europe, not just in North America, but as far as South America, as far as Argentina or Uruguay. When I did the news... I'm just shocked how much corruption has been happening over the past decades. I mean, Azerbaijan has never hidden the fact that they want to er erase Armenians from Armenia. They want to see Armenia... uh, to be erased from the face of the earth. That's their goal. It's not about Ossoff alone. It's not about the so-called territorial integrity of Azerbaijan, which, by the way, Ossoff has nothing to do with Azerbaijan's territorial integrity from the legal perspective. And that's because when Azerbaijan declared independence from Soviet Union, they have... um, um declared independence based on the territory, or based on the first Azerbaijani Republic, which did not include Nagorno-Karabakh, Autonomous Correct. Oblast. So, I mean, it has nothing to do, uh, do Artsakh has nothing to do with teritor- territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. So, the bigger um uh, Goal of Azerbaijan, as well as Turkey, is to see no Armenians at all in the region. And so they have been uh, silencing the whole world by corruption. There are so many videos, there is so much evidence, there are so many articles written on the so-called Caviar diplomacy and how Azerbaijan was corrupting left and right the influence of the politicians. I mean, fortunately there are wolves also who have integrity and who stand uh, for human rights and justice and uh, we have a senator in Canada who has been very vocal and very much supportive of Artsakh and Armenians um, but there are only few of them i mean mm. it's it's just uh shocking how the world can um be sold to uh bribery and corruption. how yes. the world is all its interested is in oil money rather than in truth in democracy in justice in protection of human rights
1: right unless they are up on a stage, behind a podium, in lights, giving this speeches, the then they say all the right Vic things, on KPFK, but the is, FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Lucine Dadayan, who is a social scientist based in Canada, and we are discussing Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal intent and ethnic cleansing of the Armenians of Artsakh. Speaking of the senator in Canada who's been a, an advocate for truth and justice, um, there have been other uh, politicians such as uh, France's President Macron, who's been very vocal about it, as well as Baroness Cox uh, in the UK Parliament um, and others. But we do we do we do need to call out that. Um, A lot of UK members of Parliament have been corrupted and have been bribed, as well as members of the Council of Europe. Um, And there's evidence Mm -hmm. for that. And a lot of newsrooms, editors and writers and journalists, who have uh, written some really just disgustingly biased um, pieces um, that seem like they are uh, advertorials for the Aliyev government. Uh, including the New York Times, of course. So it's it's uh, it's just uh, unbelievable that this can happen, and uh, the world is just so quiet about it. And you know, I'm a Democrat and I voted for President Biden, but right after he recognized the Armenian genocide after 106 years, when he turned around a week later, uh, him and Secretary Blinken decided to lift uh, Section 907 of the Freedom Act, uh, which allowed over $100 million of military aid to Azerbaijan, a country that does not need anyone's help with all the petrodollar that goes there. I found that just astonishing and just really aggravating, which I think, you know, I'm not going to hold back. And my show is called The Blunt Post, so I'm going to be blunt and say they basically are supporting and sponsoring terrorism because that's what Azerbaijan is doing they're terrorizing Armenia and Artsakh and Armenians in general and uh, this hundred million a year we're giving to Azerbaijan with American taxpayer money um, is is really uh, enabling them to do so um, under the guise of of course we are protecting our borders and this and that and all this garbage it's quite sad this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with lucine dadayan who is a social scientist based in canada and we are discussing azerbaijan and turkey's genocidal intent and ethnic cleansing of the armenians
2: of Artsakh. Is there anything good? Is there any, are there any
1: positive things that we can sort of look at? And, uh, you know, is there light at the end of this tunnel?
2: Well, I guess uh, the one thing that could be seen as positive probably this was the wake up call for the whole. Armenian community, for all Armenians, whether in Artsakh or Armenia or around the world. To be perfectly honest, like in the past, Armenians were like, well, history is on our side. Uh, law is on our side. We have all the facts. We are right. And what what should we worry about? We were never really taking I mean, the ordinary Armenians, I, myself, was never taking Aliyev's words uh, seriously. I mean, in 2005, the mayor of Baku, uh, during a meeting in uh, Germany, said that uh, they want to uh, exterminate Armenians, and he said that Nazis did it to Jews, so it's it's okay, they have to understand them. So, I mean... (sighs) I did not take those words seriously, you know, like I was never taking it, uh, seriously that something like this could happen because we are living in 21st century. But this is a wake up call for all Armenians and I think all Armenians around the world should unite and fight in every single Area, and particularly in information war. I mean, this is, uh, just ridiculous how Azerbaijan is rewriting history and presenting Armenian highlands as a mm-hmm. historical Azerbaijani land when Azerbaijan as a country did not exist until, um, the early 20th century. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's just uh, astonishing. How, um, they just come and create a huge new history. And, uh, you know, I mean, a few, few months ago, I have seen, um, uh, I have been following, uh, the editing in Wikipedia pages. And I noticed that Azerbaijan was actually rewriting the history of Iran. And I was like, something is gonna, um, uh, be happening with Iran. And today we see the, tensions between Iran and Azerbaijan as well. So, I mean, they they write the history. They wanted to create, uh, with the help of uh, Turkey, they wanted to reinstate the Ottoman Empire. I think that's their goal. And it's just troubling to see that they are spreading all over the world. These radical Islamists have to stop and uh, it's a danger for, not only for Armenians, but for Everyone in the whole world, and there should be a wake-up call for everyone, not just for Armenians.
1: Yeah, and, I mean that's that's very true. The the jihadist movement is all through Europe, and it's been a threat to uh, France and Britain and Germany and all over the place. It's really sad that these leaders, whether it's um, Merkel or Boris Johnson or whomever, that uh, they kind of live in a capsule and they don't see they, they don't i don't know what they think i shouldn't say that but turkish president erdogan's actions his pan turkic uh, aspirations are so obvious i mean this man has right. terrorized the region i don't i don't mean just immediate region around turkey but all the way to north africa and yemen and right. and of course syria a lot of the, what I think is 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 really a genocide and ethnic cleansing that's happening uh, by Turkey against the people of, uh, of of the Syrians as well as the Kurds living in Syria it's really happening and and it's not being talked about much and it's really sad and I have to say if you know if a if a single isolated terrorist act happens in Western Europe it's all over every network is talking about it and it's a newspaper headline you know but mass terrorist acts are happening today or right now in in all of that region um, mostly by Turkey and Azerbaijan and it's just uh, so sort of glanced over it's you know unless you right. really dig for it there's nobody's talking about it or writing about it
2: okay. Yeah, I mean, it needs to hit home for, for people to wake up, I guess. But, um, honestly, if it continues the way it's going, it's just a matter of a few years until, um, this movement, um, reaches to every corner of the world.
1: Yeah, it was good to see actually Iran quickly sort of, uh, rebuttal Azerbaijan and Turkey and say not in my neighborhood and really take a stand against that of the building of the military on its borders. You know, they, Azerbaijan, illegally stopped Iranian truck drivers who were sort of going through Armenia for business, commerce, uh, and they were detained. And that did not sit well with the Iranian government. It's just astonishing how bold and, uh, and audacious the Azerbaijani government is, and I blame our so-called free world leaders, including President Biden, the Secretary Blinken, and before that, the, the terrible president that we had, Trump, for allowing this to happen, because people like Aliyev and Erdogan uh, would not dare to do so if, uh, if the United States was leading and was leading uh, in the right way. Um, that they're enabled, uh, and they feel that they're untouchable. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm uh, producing a documentary uh, called Motherland, and it, uh, you know, it's going to show a lot of this, just what led to it, the reasons, and the deafening silence of the international community and some of these people that you see on um, whether TV or you know their interviews and social media who. Who have some really beautiful things to say, written up by their publicists, uh, neatly shared on their social media, like Anne Lind, who's the co chair of the Organization for Security and uh, Corporation in Europe, and the president or co president of the European Union, Charles Michel. Um, and yet the reality is really different. And the both sides um, oh. go ahead.
2: I'm looking forward to watching
1: the movie Motherland. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm very um, I'm I don't know if excited is the word because it's such a heavy subject, but I'm uh, anxious in a good way to finish it um, because I think it's just one more way that we can show the world what happened and continues to happen, and uh, you know because we can't rely on media outlets to cover it most of them are not and if they are they are they're just lousy journalism that they don't do their homework or they just intentionally write really biased pieces i think uh, only a few stand out of having written really good editorial Uh, guardian is one that i can think of and forbes has done a pretty good job I can't honestly think of any any other major outlet. This is that's the done one post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Lucine Dadayan, who is a social scientist based in Canada, and we are discussing Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal intent and
2: ethnic cleansing of the Armenians of Artsakh. What, what now, Lucina? Where do we go from here? Um, I guess, uh, we have to continue the fight for our nation, for our homeland. You know, we, we have to protect our homeland. Um, everyone has a duty to do his or her own part. Um, whatever it takes. I mean, we, we have to, to be united. We have to, protect our homeland, and we have to do everything in our capacity.
1: Absolutely. And our allies, too. We have a lot of non-Armenian allies throughout the world. Um, you know, I certainly have uh, many non-Armenian American friends who are huge supporters and are very aware and uh, active and uh, grateful for them. And, uh, you know, I hope that they stand with us. To really bring justice to thousands of people, uh, tens of thousands of people who are suffering immediately. I mean, families of, uh, of the victims who were massacred, um, mm-hmm. the injured and their families, and a lot of Armenians from Artsakh who lost their, every, they lost everything overnight. Their land, their home, their livelihood, their, their business, and now they are refugees in Armenia. You know, and those are just the immediate ones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just a lot. It's very overwhelming. Uh, and it's difficult to, it's not difficult, but it's sometimes uh, because it's, it's a topic that's not very well known. When I talk to people who are not that familiar with it, of course, I, uh, I like the opportunity to be able to inform them of this, but the challenge is that. There's so much to. There's so much exposition. There's so much, uh, like information to even, information to share, so that you can get to the, um, to what happened last year on September 27 for 44 days, and how almost 5,000 Armenians were massacred in 44 days in, in this horrific, um, assault, and ethnic cleansing that was unleashed by Azerbaijan and Turkey. So, yeah.
2: Any. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I was going to say you mentioned about the allies. I'm so grateful to everyone who stands with Armenians, who understands the severity of this um, humanitarian crisis, the severity of the threat uh, to Armenians, not only in Artsakh, but also in Armenia and uh, also around the world. I mean, we have seen this... uh Turkish regime who's against Armenians in Europe, uh, going and trying to find Armenians to kill them. So everyone who stands with Armenians, I'm very grateful to uh, to both people, and there are lots of them. I mean, <laughs> for sure, the the world is corrupt, but thankfully there are also those who are truth to justice and truth to. Humanity,
1: and they are standing with us. Absolutely, uh, Lucinet, Thank you so much for um, being on the show, for your wisdom, and uh, you know all the just the great information you shared with us. Um, we're definitely in this fight together, not just as uh, Armenian Americans on my part and, and, and Armenian Canadian on yours, but just as human beings and uh, just as humanity fighting the the injustices and ethnic cleansing that's still happening well not surprisingly but just sadly in in the 21st century as you said uh thank you again and um hope to uh, chat with you again soon
2: thank you Vic. it's always a great pleasure talking to you and thank you for everything that was my interview with lucina who
1: is a a social scientist and an expert on The politics, the geopolitics, and petropolitics of the South Caucasus, uh, which is uh, Azerbaijan, or Armenia, Georgia, uh, parts of Turkey, and the genocidal policies of Turkey and Azerbaijan against uh, their neighbors. Um, Lucina, thank you so much for being on the show this morning, and I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you.
0: The Blunt Post with Vic.